If you would, uh, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts 27. Uh, We should have pew Bibles uh, right in front of you. They're kind of small print, so if there's a a larger print needed, those can be available as well. Well, there are a number of themes running through Scripture, and I'm sure if asked, we could all come up with a few themes. Um, I want to highlight just for a moment uh, God's omniscience, uh, his all-knowing, his omnipresence. He's everywhere present. And uh, going back to what was read just a few minutes ago from Psalm 139, here are verses 7 through 10 once again. The psalmist says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. God is everywhere, as the children's catechism rightly says. You know, the Old Testament begins with God creating man, male and female, and men and women lived in the presence of the Lord. We remember the time when uh, Moses had died and Joshua was called to lead God's people into the promised land. We read in Joshua 1, Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah the prophet records these these words, Fear not, he says in Isaiah 41, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And remember how the New Testament begins, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's at the beginning of Matthew. At the end of Matthew, we hear Jesus say, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And how do our scriptures end? What do we read in Revelation 21? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Well, in our text today, we will see God being faithful to his promise to be with his people and for his people. Though it's not evident at first glance or on the surface, but we're going to take at least for about 25 minutes or so an extended look and we're going to begin to dig a bit deeper into the text. Remember, Acts is Luke volume 2. In Luke 1, he says his purpose is to provide a narrative, an orderly account that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He's writing to a Roman Gentile, Theophilus. And he begins Acts reminding Theophilus of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so Acts, of course, is what Jesus continues to do and teach now by his Holy Spirit in and through the church. And as we head to God's word, let's turn to him in prayer. Oh, Father, be pleased now to indeed 
continue to teach your people about who you are, about what you ask us to do, and about how we are to have a humble reliance upon Christ. Oh, Father, open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts now. As we listen to you, speak to us through your word. Amen. Paul is headed to Rome. We read in Acts 23, 11, you may recall, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul has to get to Rome. He cannot but get to Rome. He will get to Rome. Remember last time we were here in Acts 26, his trial of sorts before the Jewish king Agrippa and the Roman governor Festus had concluded. The whole purpose was so that Festus could know what to write to Caesar in Rome about this Jewish prisoner he was going to send. And we pick up today in indeed Paul being sent to Rome, delivered over uh, to be transported to Rome. Rome, the largest and most splendid of ancient cities, the capital and symbol of the Roman Empire, the center of the known world. To be sure, the gospel had already gotten to Rome. We don't know how Paul had written his letter to the Romans, anticipating a visit one day on his way to Spain. Little did Paul know that he was going to go to Rome in chains, but as Paul would minister there, in prison, house arrest for a, a couple of years. Indeed, the gospel would continue to go out from Rome. And Luke, two-fifths of Luke is about Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And here in Acts, a whole third of the book is Paul's journey now from Jerusalem to Rome. What we're going to be seeing for the next few weeks is a travelogue of a sea journey, a, a historical record that's, that's accurate because Luke is not only a historian recording facts accurately, he's a theologian. He's bringing them together for a purpose, to teach Theophilus, to teach us about God. Now, back in the 1800s, there was a Scottish sailor by the name of James Smith, and he wrote a book called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. And he spent two years in the Mediterranean retracing Paul's steps, and he writes this about Luke. No sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man, not a sailor, could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts, unless from actual Observation, And so what we'll see today is Luke picking up the we section. Luke will be on board, we will see, and we'll head to Rome with Paul. It's a dangerous journey. It's a difficult voyage uh, to Rome by sea. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the time today to go into all the nautical details. Um, I happen to have been to both Cyprus and Crete, and I've sailed around the waters so feel free to see me later and we can talk about it. But that's not the purpose. It's not a lecture today. We want to know what God says to us from his word. Thus far, Paul has faced many man-made obstacles. A mob attack, scourging, whipping, 
plots, attempted ambushes, trials. And now we will see Paul face his greatest challenge, a storm at sea. Will natural forces do what human opponents have been unable to do thus far, to stop God's gracious purposes for Paul to get to Rome? Within the naval service, there's a time-honored tradition of sending a a service member um, off, whether it's a retirement or a transfer, with these words, fair winds and following seas. And this would be wishing that sailor, that marine, a smooth, safe, and successful voyage. But as we will begin to see today and for the next couple of weeks, Paul did not have fair winds and following seas. He had the opposite. But what he did have was much more powerful. What he did have was much more important. He had the presence of the Lord. Join with me as I read verses 1 through 12. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramathium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Astarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing to Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinedus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lesa. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Do you notice that God is not mentioned in the text? Yet even though Luke does not refer to God, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit directly, we know he's present nonetheless. How is the presence of God made known? I believe that we can see at least three ways from this prologue to the storm, the shipwreck, and the survival. That we can see at least three ways, and those are through the kindness of an unbeliever, through the encouragement of the church, and through the companionship of close friends. 
First, let's take a look at the kindness. God's presence being made known through the kindness of an unbeliever. Notice verse 3, and Julius, the centurion, treated Paul kindly. It's not a general kindness, but a specific kindness, as we will see. And this individual, Luke records for all of history, 2,000 years later, we know the name of this Roman centurion, Julius. This shows us the, the kindness of God's common grace. I think we are in a world today, sadly, where it's us versus them. Us versus them. You know, in one sense, yes, it's the church versus the world, right? But in another sense, we're all part of the human race. People are made in the image of God, and we do a great disservice to ourselves and to the world when we just make it all about us versus them. The kindness of God's common grace. Amazingly, God is at work through the kindness of an unbeliever. All men are made in the image of God. All men, in some way, shape, or form, reflect who God is. Yes, the image of God is corrupted. Yes, it is, it is uh, marred with sin, but it's not extinguished. It's not totally destroyed. Because you see, one communicable attribute of God is his kindness. Luke records it in Luke 6 that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Think about that. God, who is holy and righteous and just, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In the book, The Reason for God, that came out back in 2005, uh, Tim Keller writes this. Christians then should expect to find non-believers who are much nicer, kinder, wiser, and better than they are. Why? Christian believers are not accepted by God because of their moral performance, wisdom, or virtue, but because of Christ's work on their behalf. Most Religions and philosophies of life assume that one's individual, excuse me, one's spiritual status depends upon your spiritual attainments. This naturally leads adherents to feel superior to those who don't believe and behave as they do. The Christian gospel, in any case, should not have that effect. Have you found that to be the case? When we lived in Pennsylvania, there were times when I often wanted to spend time much more time with my unbelieving neighbors than I did with people who were professing Christians. Why? They were kind. They were kind. And yet, kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's one aspect of that fruit of the Spirit that we read in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. It's right in the mix. So believers, excuse me, unbelievers can, can be kind, but here believers have the fruit of the Spirit, one of which facet is kindness. And indeed, Paul tells the church in Colossae to put on kindness. Isn't that interesting? It's a fruit, but then put it on. It's kind of like if you heard in Luke 12 that seek the kingdom 
and you will be given the kingdom. God is pleased to give you the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? God asks us to seek it. He says he will provide it. Kindness, common grace, kindness, a fruit of the Spirit. My friends, if a Roman centurion, most likely, at least at this time, an unbeliever, if he can be kind, how much more should we recognize the kindness of God? In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, what does he say? The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Does Paul think God is holy? Absolutely. Does God, does, does Paul think that the wages of sin is death? Absolutely. But look how he describes God's grace, the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My friends, before we move on, may we all open our eyes and see the kindness of God toward us, not only as it were directly through Jesus Christ, that riches of his grace and kindness, but even seeing the kindness of God in your unbelieving neighbor, the cashier at the grocery store, the physician that may help you, the clerk at the store who is looking up something for you, the plumber who comes over to do work for you. My friends, let's open our eyes to see the kindness of God reflected in the world around us. So what effect did this kindness of the centurion have on Paul. It wasn't a general kindness. It's a specific kindness. And this kindness led directly to Paul being able to get to the church and be encouraged by the church. And so this second way that the presence of God is known is through the encouragement of the church. Notice how verse 3 continues. And gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. I take friends here in the sense of the end of 3 John where Christians are just referred to as friends. The friends greet you, uh, John writes at the end of his third letter. It's, it's the church in Sidon, 70 miles north of, of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, present day Lebanon. How, how did the church get to Sidon? Well, believers were scattered after Stephen's death they had evangelized this region we read in Acts 11. Paul and Barnabas are encouraging these Phoenician churches on their way to the council of Jerusalem in chapter 15. And we read or read and studied earlier in chapter 21 where Paul enjoyed a week of fellowship with believers in Tyre, very close to Sidon. So the ship pulls into Sidon for what we would call a brief stop for fuel or a brief stop for provisions. And even if you're there for like six hours or 12 hours or 24 hours, a lot is happening. Things are going off the ship and things are coming on the ship. So during this brief stop for encouragement, Paul joins the believers in Sidon. He enjoys their company conversation, probably, as many have speculated, a meal, and is provided with gifts. 
Paul is among fellow believers in the church. He's being encouraged. He's being cared for. You know, I've been thinking about encouragement lately, especially over this past year that has been discouraging in so many ways with things not happening as normal. Um, I've seen the need to be encouraged. And I want to to encourage, pardon the use of the word there, ourselves to, to, to really see that encouragement is a ministry of the church. It's not flattery. It, it's not seeking to manipulate. It's seeking to build up and serve and encourage and point people to the Lord. Is there a way that you can encourage people too much? I doubt it. There's no way that any of you out here can encourage me too much. There's no way I'm going to stiff arm your encouragement. Because living in a sinful and fallen world, we all need it and we need it more than we realize. And we as a church have got to realize that we can have a significant ministry toward one another in encouragement. Like Paul, we are to seek this fellowship out. And like Paul, we're to be humble enough to receive it. Here's the apostle being humble enough to receive a meal, receive gifts, receive the encouragement. And and like the church inside, and we are called to be prepared to provide it, to be humble enough to give it. You see, I just think most of us still have this American independent mindset that is, is, is born with us. Because what are some of the first words our children learn to say? What's one of their first sentences? I do it myself. I do it myself. No. Here is Paul knowing he can't do it himself. He needs the church and they need to be caring for someone like him. You see, Paul was cared for and encouraged by unnamed members of the church in Sidon. Did you hear any of their names mentioned? No. Yet, he's going to be on board a ship with two other named people, Luke and Aristarchus, his close companions. And so from our text, I think a third way that we see the presence of God is through the companionship of of close friends. I mentioned earlier, this is the resumption of the we section. It, 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 it starts in uh, 27.1 and it continues for a while and it had last been there, I think, in chapter 21. Uh, and we don't know what Luke was doing while Paul was in Caesarea uh, for two years, kind of awaiting trial, but we do think that he was out researching for his gospel researching for what he would later write as Acts. But here comes Luke and Paul on the ship. Notice nine times in the first eight verses, we see the word, the pronoun we. And three times in verses four through seven, we, we see us. So Luke is, is writing and he's speaking for Paul at at least this named companion, this fellow traveler, Aristarchus. Who is he? Well, in Acts 19, we see that he's Paul's traveling companion in Ephesus, and he's involved in the riot and the mob 
and we read of him being dragged along with Gaius. We, we see him in Colossians 4.10 being referred to as my fellow prisoner. It looks like Aristarchus makes it to Rome with Paul and he's in prison with Paul. Paul can write to the church and say, he's my fellow prisoner. And in Philemon, we see Aristarchus called one of my fellow workers. A fellow prisoner, a fellow worker. They're enjoying fellowship, close communion. They're companions. These three, along with the total of 276 that will be on that Alexandrian ship, that grain ship headed to Italy, uh, these three are shipmates. They eat together, they sleep together, they work together, they're together 24-7, and I have a little bit of experience as well as Stan, as well as uh, Rex, has a little bit of experience of life on board a ship. They're shipmates, and we know that that is even an expression of a close companion. Even in his life-threatening trials, Paul here is surrounded and supported by Christian friends. Yes, Paul's got to get to Rome, but he's not going alone. Toward the end, you heard how Paul provided some counsel, some wisdom, some advice. It wasn't heated, but Paul knew a thing about dangerous times at sea. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says he had been shipwrecked three times. He had spent a day and a night adrift at sea. And I think he's speaking from some human wisdom. He doesn't want that to happen again. He provides a warning. It's not taken, but he and his friends are together on the ship. And we will see as the story unfolds, yes, there will be a storm. Yes, there will be a shipwreck. But yes, there will be survival. So we spoke a moment ago about the encouragement from the church. And here is the companionship of close friends. Uh, ask yourself, do you have a few close companions, not, not acquaintances and most certainly not Facebook friends, but real friends, uh, buddies, partners, mates. I mean, Jesus had the 12 disciples, right? But remember, he also has the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, that he brings in closer. Everybody gets Jesus's presence, and these three get a little more of his presence. Ask yourself, this question, do you have friends who you can be vulnerable with and safe with? Friends who can handle the fine china of your life with the necessary discretion and with delicate care? Friends who cheer you up, who don't bring you down? I think all of us have acquaintances that we hope will turn into friendships, don't we? But the more that I think about it, and I bet the more you think about it, a good friend is really a gift from the Lord, isn't it? 
a good friend who you can share your life with, who you can be open and honest, and they're not trying to win the argument. They're not trying to prove how superior they are to you. They don't come across with an air of moral superiority. Their goal in life is not to improve you, correct you. No, their goal is to live life with you, pointing you to the Lord, rejoicing when you rejoice and weeping when you weep. Do you have those kind of friends? If not, ask the Lord for that kind of friend. Paul's got them. Jesus had them. Friends who, who, who cheer you up. It, it, it's Jack Miller saying the Bible is summed up in two sentences. First, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. Do you have friends that can tell you that? But not walk away from you? Do you have a friend that says, and second, cheer up, God's grace is a lot bigger than you think it is. You know, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Do you have a friend that can sing that song with you? My friends, the importance of the support of Christian friends should not be underestimated. And Paul's got it, as it were, from a distance and a short time with the church in Sidon. And he's got it up close and personal for a long time with, get this, Luke, a Gentile. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica who comes to faith in Jesus at some point earlier. So we see here God's presence made known through kindness, through encouragement, and through companionship. Well, as we wrap up, two things stand out. First, God provides for us through his word and spirit. Uh, earlier I said this kind of a text was exciting to me. It talked about Cyprus and Crete and harbors and wind. But it's a hard text. Where's God in the text? What does God want to teach us? What does God want to show us about himself and about who we are? But I remembered all scripture is breathed out by God, right? And the word of God is living and active. Even Acts 27, 1 through 12. And Paul would write the Roman church and he says this, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Brothers and sisters, these verses for God's people provide encouragement as the Spirit gives us understanding and as the Spirit applies it to us. So two things stand out. First, God provides for us through his word and by his spirit. And second, God provides for us through people, both believers and non-believers. You see, our text calls us to recognize that God's presence with us is made known through non-believers in their kindness, through the church in its encouragement, and through close friendships and companionships. Indeed, God's presence with us is his greatest provision 
for us. When I'm alone and by myself, I can get scared and afraid. If I'm with someone, a friend, my wife, a child, a fellow elder, my best man and best friend back in Virginia who calls me shipmate, even though he's a Marine, he gets it. The fear seems to go away, or at least be greatly lessened. The presence of God is his greatest provision. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, said in the moments when he died in February 1791, these words, the best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. Can you say that now? My friends, do you recognize his provision? Do you recognize the provision of his presence? My friends, if God is with us, And if God is for us, as we read in Romans 8, who can be against us? That doesn't lead to arrogance. That doesn't lead to us better than them. That leads to humility and service. If God is for us, who can be against us? And finally, this question. Are you and I, are we growing in our ability to be used by God through our kindness, through our encouragement, through our friendship to fellow believers on the long and sometimes dangerous journey home. We need one another, and the Lord will provide. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this portion of your word, which on the surface is a travelogue, a a, a daily log of a journey by sea. And yet, Father, it is so much more. Your word is living. Your word is active. Your word is indeed breathed out by you, Father. Oh, Father, would you be pleased now to, to take your word that we have heard and plant it deep within us, that we could be a people despite our sin, who nonetheless could be known as people who are kind. And people, despite our sin, who could be known as people who are encouraging. And despite our sin, that we could be people who are known as faithful friends. Help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Both respond to what we've heard and prepare our hearts for taking the Lord's Supper by seat.